The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Honored to be a part of the family and be here this morning. So good morning, Story City Church. How are you guys this morning? Oh man, this side's all excited. What happened over here? You're not lessened just because there's half of you, but it's okay. I just want you to know we are excited that you are here this morning, whether you're here in Pickwick Gardens with us or you're joining us online. We are stoked to have you. It is a pleasure to be here with you. Did you know that the church actually isn't about us? Do you know that? We hear that all the time. I'm coming to church. I got to go to church or I need to get fed this morning. Right? We've all heard that. I'm feeling down. If I just get some church up in me, I'll feel better this morning. But the truth is that church isn't about us. Church isn't a building. It's a group of people who are called out on mission according to what God has called them to. This is why there's so many churches. God has different people called together to be on mission. And it doesn't matter if we've loved Jesus for a long time or if we're still figuring out this whole Jesus and his church thing. We all have the same mission. What is that mission? It has two parts. Jesus said there was two commands that were greater than anything else, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the first part of this mission is to be an apprentice of Jesus. What's an apprentice? An apprentice is somebody who learns at the feet of a master. They study, they watch, they learn. And so first, we are to learn to love and follow Jesus. That's the first part of our mission. But Jesus said the second part of our mission is to love others the way that we love ourselves, to love others the way that we love ourselves. You know, I think sometimes we gloss over stuff in the Bible and we just think, oh, that's, that's really nice. But, but what does that really mean? To love people as ourself means to extend the same understanding, the same justification, the same patience, the same benefit of the doubt, the same grace that you would extend to yourself when you do something wrong to other people. That's what it means to love others as yourself. And that doesn't just mean the people that you like. It includes those that look different, that think different, that act different, and dare I say, vote different than you. So when we gather as a church, it's about Jesus first and foremost, and then secondly, it's about the people around us. Now on a Sunday, that means we enjoy worshiping and learning together like we are right now. During the rest of the week, it's about how we model Jesus to our family, to our friends, to our coworkers, to the people God has placed in our life. That's what it means to be on mission. Each one of us here is called to that. Uh, Before I go on, um, I don't want to forget, we have some very special guests here today. I don't see you right away, um, but I want to recognize them. They moved here specifically to be missionaries to Los Angeles, and this is a very, very hard city to come to, so I would like them to stand so that we can just recognize them and say thank you for being here. Where are you guys? If you could stand for me. I don't see them. I I think they're shy. They didn't know I was going to do this this morning, so um, it's okay, guys. I don't want to embarrass you. I just want to recognize you for a moment. I tell you what, would you guys do me a favor? Would you just stand with them so that they don't feel so awkward? Just go ahead. Just stand. It's all right. We're not going to embarrass them, but sometimes standing by yourself feels really weird, so go ahead and stand. Yeah, if you look around, these are the missionaries to Los Angeles, everybody that's standing today. You can give yourselves a hand, that's right. 
suckers. No, I'm just kidding. You can be seated. But here's the thing. If we are a church that is on mission for God, then that makes you a what? A missionary. You are not here by accident. You are a missionary placed here by God, whether you think it was by accident you're here or not. God has called you specifically to where you are, to where you work, even if you hate it. You are here in your family, in this place, in this church, because God has called you. And that is pretty awesome. So welcome. We are so glad that you are here this morning. Um, Let's pray, and then we will jump into the rest of the sermon. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you've called us as missionaries. And sometimes we don't see ourselves as that, but you have. You've put a calling on each one of our lives to, to learn to apprentice your son Jesus and to learn to love others in the way that we love ourselves, to extend those same rights, that same grace, that same understanding to the people around us. And so I pray that you would help us to truly love people. Lord, show us the areas of our lives that we're not following you and the areas of our life that we're not truly loving other people. In the midst of that, instead of trying harder, would you help us to rest in you and to learn to love you and love other people? We praise you and thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing in the book of Acts today. And uh, as we do, um, I want us to see how the church actually got sent in the first place. It might not be the way that you think. And so we're gonna open our Bibles to Acts chapter six. For those of you new to the Bibles, if you open it right about to the middle, that is the Psalms. The Bible's divided into two parts, Old Testament or Old Covenant and New Testament or New Covenant. The Old Testament is before Jesus came and put on human nature. Jesus has always existed. The second uh, part of it, the New Testament, is when Jesus put on human nature in addition to his God nature, fully God and fully man, and he comes, creates, and empowers and sends his church. That's what the New, Te- New Testament is all about. The New Testament starts with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the very next book is the book of Acts. If you hit Romans, you went too far back up. You'll be right there in Acts. Now here's a little recap on the book of Acts so far. So far, we've seen the church exploding with growth. We've seen favor with the people earned, um, all kinds of people uh, highly respect the church. We've seen an incredible amount of miracles God is doing through the people in the church. And we begin to see pressure from the government and religious leaders. We see the early church struggle through internal conflict, through racism, through, through uh, just incredible uh, challenges that they've wrestled with. What does this look like? They've gone through famine. They've, just, they've struggled together as a church. They see pressure again from the religious leaders. But this week, everything changes for the early church Everything is flipped upside down. More than 25,000 people flee for their lives and everything again changes, not just for them, but for us. And it all kicks off with this one event. And so again, if you turn with me to Acts chapter six, verses eight to 15, that's what we'll be this morning. Acts chapter six, verses eight to 15, it says this. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. They secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. 
they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw his face was like the face of an angel. Now, for the sake of time, let's skip down to chapter seven, verse 51, or to put it another way, this sermon has been edited for content and to fit in the allotted time. Acts chapter seven, verses 51 to eight, one says this. Stephen is wrapping up his argument and this is the end of that argument and what happens afterwards. He says, you stiff necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him? You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul approved of their killing him. On that great day, a persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Two weeks ago, Pastor Matt briefly introduced us to Stephen as one of the seven chosen to help with the church administration, the running of the church, the day-to-day -day stuff. And we see this, even though he started there in chapter six, verse eight, he was full of grace and, and power and was performing miracles amongst the people. In verses nine and 10, a group of people then come to debate with him, but because he's so filled with grace and power and the Holy Spirit, they can't refute him and they can't do anything except bring up false charges against him. And he's brought in front of the rulers of Israel and asked to answer for his crime of blasphemy. Now remember, he's standing in front of the most devout, the most learned, the supposedly most holy people in all of Israel. They're literally the highest authorities in religion and government in the nation, save for Rome, who is over them. And Stephen answers their charges, their crime of blasphemy against him by laying out a pattern. He says, you guys keep doing the same thing over and over again. He says, you're still making the same choices Adam and Eve did. But he goes farther. He doesn't just say you guys aren't following God, but that you have continually persecuted and killed all the messengers God sent you to get you back to him, including the long-awaited Messiah, who, by the way, was Jesus who you just murdered. They're enraged. They drag him outside the city and they kill him on the spot. Now, think about this for a second. I love this part. Stephen says, you guys are murderers. And they're like, no, we're not. Kill him. 
Why is this important to us though? Why is this important to us? I want you to think about something for a minute. Could God have rescued Stephen? Could God have rescued Stephen? The answer is a resounding yes. Of course he could have rescued Stephen. Then why didn't he? And isn't Stephen doing what he's called to do? Isn't he on mission, bringing credit and glory to Jesus? Isn't, isn't this what he's called to do? So why didn't he rescue Stephen? Before we answer that question, I think it's really important to return to the gospel. And I, I love, I was brought up in a church where, where I was taught the gospel is something that you, you learn, you kind of memorize it like your ABCs and you move past it. But I love what Pastor J.D. Greer says about this. He says, the gospel is not something we learn and grow past like the ABCs. The gospel is a well we need to go deeper and deeper to as we become mature in Jesus. So what is the gospel? Some of you may know this. It's okay. It's, it's important for us to remind ourselves of this. Here's the gospel. That God created everything known and unknown in the universe. God created us as humans and he placed humans, even though he was king, he placed, placed humans over the creation that he created. And he said, it's your job to be a reflection, to point back to who God is, how he loves, how he leads, how he cares, how he rules. And Adam and Eve's job was to submit to God's rule and authority to follow him as they led creation. Obviously, sin broke the relationship not only between God and humans, between humankind and each other, but humans and all of creation. You can see today the effects of what we've done. We are not good reflections pointing back to who God is, how he loves, leads, cares, or rules. And so, basically, Adam and Eve's sin was not eating fruit in the garden. Adam and Eve's sin was saying, we don't believe God that you can actually make the best choices for creation and for ourselves that we can. We've got this. We don't really need you. That was the sin in their hearts. Everyone born after Adam and Eve were born spiritually dead. So all of us are guilty at birth. But on top of that, this full-blown treason against God, we can do this better than you can, is the exact same treason we commit against God to this day. I'm sure none of you struggle with trusting in God and, and, uh, and wanting control over your life, right? That's just me. All sin comes down to control. All sin comes down to control. When you think about it that way, it's pretty overwhelming how much we actually sin. This treason, this sin against a good, loving, and gracious God carries the penalty of death. And so because God is a just God, because he's a good God, he condemned everyone who was guilty to death. But because he's a loving and merciful God, he sent his son to take the punishment for us. He didn't just say, don't worry about it. I forgive you all. Overlook the sin. It's okay because that wouldn't be just. But because he's merciful, he said, I will send my son in your place. He literally took our punishment and paid for it with his life. If that weren't enough, those of us who are apprenticing Jesus become adopted into God's family and become co-heirs with Christ. That means we are sons and daughters of the king. That means we've been saved. We've been rescued. In the meantime, we're being made to look more and more like the one who saved us as we apprentice Jesus. We are being saved. And one day God will once and for all come and restore all creation back to him. We will be saved. 
But this means that the job that we were created for hasn't changed. We are still called to the same job, the same mission. We are still to be reflections of who Jesus is, how he leads, loves, cares, and rules. That's what it means to be Christ-like. And so if you're taking notes today, this is the first observation for the day. First observation is this. If we are to become Christ-like, we will be persecuted like Christ. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it? Who is this guy? What is he talking about today? If we are to become Christ-like, we will be persecuted like Christ. In Stephen's last moments, it's actually not Stephen who is being put on trial. It's Jesus. In Stephen's last moments, all of who Stephen is points back gloriously to Jesus. And Stephen becomes like Jesus, the suffering servant, announcing the truth of the kingdom of God, and like Jesus is murdered for it. Even Stephen's death is a testimony to who Jesus is. But that's not all. In Acts 5, 17 to 32, we see a very similar circumstance where the apostles were arrested and then God released them from prison miraculously. God then directs them to go right back to the temple where they were arrested and to continue teaching. See, the point of the miracle wasn't to protect them. The point of the miracle was to remind them God is bigger and more powerful even than those who hold the power of life and death over them. He is by our side. It's the exact reason God doesn't save Stephen here. Stephen has a mission and a calling, and it's the same one we have, to point to Jesus as Savior and make God's name famous. Now, in this story, this is the moment where Stephen fulfills his purpose, and he goes to be with Jesus. But, you know, his story started with being one of the 12 disciples, right? No. Stephen was not one of the 12 disciples. He was chosen from the church. Stephen was a church member. He was one of us. He was from the body. We have the same mission as Stephen. It's one of the reasons this is showed to us. This is shown to us in the scriptures here. Look at the Bible clearly says in 2 Timothy 3, 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think that leaves out some people, right? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And John 16, says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is Jesus speaking. If we are to be followers of Christ, we are not our own. Everything belongs to Jesus. Our hopes, our dreams, our lives are his. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 10, 37 to 39. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. How can Jesus say this? Here's why. Because ultimately, we only trust what we love. If we only trust ourselves, then we only love ourselves. We only trust what we love. If we only trust ourselves, then we only love ourselves. 
When we recognize Jesus as Lord, we become people who serve a God who loves us more than we could ever possibly love ourselves, our families. We love a God who gives us better lives than we could hope or dream for, but it requires total surrender to him, total trust of ourselves to him, even to the point of death. Now, in exchange for this trust, in exchange for surrendering our lives to Jesus, we find true life. We find authentic life. We find abundant life. We find eternal life, but not an easy life. Hello, 2020. If you're taking notes today, this is our second observation for the day. Learning from persecution is the process of spiritual maturity. Learning from persecution is the process of spiritual maturity. If the Bible is clear, we will all face persecution as followers of Christ. It is just as clear why. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. That's weird. We glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That word glory in verse three there literally means to be so proud you can't stop talking about it. You're bragging about it. You're so proud. So what he's saying is, but we also brag about our sufferings. We're so proud of it that we can't wait to tell people the suffering that we're going through. Why? because that produces perseverance, character, and hope in us. And the hope does not put us to shame means that we will not be let down in that. Why? Because God is with us, because God's love is important to our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is with us. Take a look at James 1, 2 to 4. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, how are we supposed to find true joy when we experience persecution and hardship? Romans 8, 28 says, all of these things are worked out for our good. I love this. This is one of the most misunderstood and misused scriptures in the Bible, right? Everything works out for good. That means everything's going to be great. No, it does not mean that. It does not mean that things turn out well. That's not what it means here. Jared, what does it mean? It means that whatever God allows us to experience is absolutely best for us and best for the kingdom of God. That whatever we go through, no matter how horrific it is, somehow it's best for us and best for the kingdom of God, even if we don't understand it in this lifetime. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way. He says, it's exactly what we would want and choose to experience if we knew exactly what God knows. See, it's not God that's doing these things to us. We live in a broken, sinful world. But God always uses these things to make us more like him, to become mature and complete, to be a better reflection of who Jesus is. I want to share a story with you. May 23rd, 2004 
was one of the best and worst days of my life. My very pregnant wife and I happily met at the hospital. I came from work and I met her in labor and delivery. We were waiting the birth of our second child, our first boy. And for months, I was dreaming of all of the things I was going to do with my son. I was dreaming of our first baseball games, our first football games, our first soccer games. I couldn't wait to teach him to learn how to surf. And I was wondering if I was going to be old enough to have to buy a longboard finally. I was thinking of all the things I wanted my son to be and to experience, and I wanted so much for him, but then it all came crashing down. We had no indication that something was wrong. I was standing next to the doctor waiting to cut the umbilical cord when my son was delivered, and suddenly, as he came out, the doctor yelled an expletive and cut the cord herself. The room seemed to instantaneously swell with people. I, it felt crowded in that moment. Alarms are going off. Just as quickly, we were alone. They had rushed out without our son. My wife is sitting on the table there, and, and both of us were just dumbfounded. What just happened? And after what seemed like an eternity, it was a teaching hospital, a resident came in. I remember her running in so fast she slid in and she said this, your, ton, your son has aspirated a ton of myconium. They, he inhaled myconium, the baby poop. She said, we haven't seen a case this bad in a very long time. He's probably not going to make it. We're going to try and life flight him to Children's Hospital, but I want you to know he'll probably pass away en route. But you know, by the way, he has Down syndrome, right? And then she ran out of the room. And just like that, we were alone again. What? My baby is probably not going to survive, but if he does, he's going to have Down syndrome. What does that even mean for us? A few short years later, we would find out that he also has autism. My son Chance is 16 years old. He's still in diapers. Most of the time he's in a wheelchair and he's unable to speak. If you've attended the outdoor services here at Pickwick Gardens, you've probably heard him. If I'm being completely honest, this is not the life my wife and I would have chosen for him or for us. And I want to remind you that God didn't do this to him. And I'm not complaining about my son in any way. I'm just trying to be transparent with you. And one of the things I've personally struggled with in my life is this need to prove myself to God and to people. This feeling of, well, if I just work hard enough, if I just show God that I'm worthy of the forgiveness and the grace that he's given me, then things will go well for me. Codependency, the need for people to validate me and to, to make me feel like I'm worthy is definitely one of my hurts, habits, and hangups for sure. And while God didn't cause my son to be severely disabled, over and over, God has shown me his incredible love and grace through my son. You see, my son Chance doesn't love you because you're good or because you earned it. My son Chance doesn't love you because you've done anything special for you. He loves you simply because you're there. And that's who he is. He loves you simply because you are there to love. And so I've come to realize that my disabled son is a better reflector of Jesus than I am. I'm the one who is spiritually disabled. 
In Acts chapter 7, verse 59, in the middle of his own death, Stephen has a completely different perspective on suffering than we typically do. God is so clearly the focus of his perspective on suffering that he's able to ask God to forgive his murderers as they are killing him. I'm not sure that I would be able to do that. In fact, I know I wouldn't because I would be working really hard to think of one last sarcastic thing to say before I went. But Stephen has been made to look like Jesus in Christianese. You know, those of you who've been Christians for a long time, you forget we have our own language sometimes. We say stuff that sounds really weird to people who have not grown up in these traditions or not seen Jesus their whole lives, right? So we speak weird. You need to understand that. In Christianese, we call this process of becoming more like Jesus sanctification. There's our $2 word of the week, sanctification. And sanctification is simply the process of becoming spiritually mature. Paul tells us in his letter to the Philippians, chapter one, verse six, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. We will continue to be sanctified, to continue to look more like Jesus in that process. And that process will oftentimes involve suffering. Do you know why? Here's what I found over my life. More often than not, I forget I need Jesus when things are going well. More often than not, when things are going well, I feel like I can do things in my own power. It's only when everything is falling apart around me, and you may not be like this, I'm just talking about me. But when things are really difficult, those are the times that I find, I can't do this. Help, I need you. And I begin to look less like myself and more like Jesus. But if our mission is both to love and apprentice Jesus to be more like him, if that's only the first part of the mission and our second part of the mission is to love others and help them learn to love and follow Jesus, then sometimes suffering isn't even really about us. If you're taking notes today, this is the third and final observation. We are called to be blessed, to be broken and given. We are called to be blessed, to be broken, to be given. Take a look with me again at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Saul approved of their killing him. It's talking about Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all, it's over 25,000 people, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. The church is scattered. They're being beaten and rounded up. It says that they are entering their homes. They're coming into their homes, beating them and throwing them into jail. This incident with Stephen kicks off the whole scale persecution of the church. But it is this very scattering that allows the gospel to spread to the ends of the earth. Other churches throughout ancient Middle East are planted because of this scattering. And as these apprentices of Jesus scatter, they build relationships and share their lives and their love for Jesus and people with the world around them. Well, God didn't cause these men, these men to murder Stephen. He used it for what was best for the kingdom of God. Theologian Henry Nouwen says 
apprentices of Jesus are like communion, that we are blessed to be broken, to be given away. Blessed to be broken, to be given away. Communion is a model of Jesus. It's a reminding us of what Jesus has done for us, who he is. But it's also a reminder of our calling. When we suffer, it's a reminder that we are to look like Jesus who came as the suffering servant. In this way, our lives are meant to not only be a reflection of who God is, but to remind us to point back to our gospel identity that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God. Matthew 3, 17, the father speaks to the son. He says, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Did you know that applies to those of us who are apprentices of Jesus this morning? You are the son and daughter of God. In verse 60, when Stephen begs God to forgive the very people who are murdering him, Stephen doesn't see them for what they've done, but for who they are. Stephen doesn't see the murderers for what they've done, but he sees them as people. Stephen actually enters their brokenness. He understands their actions and he looks past that and he loves them for who they are, despite the fact that their actions are directed against him. They're murdering him. Jesus did this too as he was on the cross. And if we are to love people as ourselves, remember that means to extend the same understanding, justification, patience, and benefit of the doubt that you would give yourself to the people around you that we have to learn to love them not for what it benefits us but because it's who we are as people to enter into someone's brokenness doesn't mean you agree with them in everything it means you love them regardless like Stephen like Chance like Jesus this week I want to encourage all of us to ask Jesus to show us Are we apprenticing Jesus in the ways he wants us to? And are we reflecting Jesus in the way that we love others? Here's the good news. Even if we fall short, it's not about trying to work harder or be better. It's literally about stopping, resting, and being with Jesus that brings about change through his Holy Spirit. This morning, if you don't know Jesus in that way, if you can't love others in that way, I want you to know that Jesus can do that in your life. He wants you to be like that. And it's not perfect. I have a long way to go to learn to love others in those same ways. All of us do. But he wants to do that in us. And he wants to do things through us. So I encourage you, if you want to know more about Jesus, text us, contact us. We would love to share that with you. But for the rest of us, again, I want to encourage us. Seriously, spend some time asking yourself, is this the place where Jesus wants me to be? Am I on his mission? Am I loving him and apprenticing him in the way that he's called me to? And am I loving others in a way that reflects who he is? Let's pray. God, thank you that your grace is enough for us. That we don't have to earn our salvation with you. That we don't have to earn the right to be forgiven. That we don't have to earn a place with you. That you literally have loved, accepted, forgiven, and called us because of who you are, not because of who we are. Thank you for your mercy. I pray that you would meet us right where we're at this week. As we turn to you, as we seek your face, I pray that you'd be clear to us. 
Help us to look more like you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand as we sing and respond.